You're listening to episode 20 of Chirps, a St. Louis Cardinals podcast for Birds on the Black. He's Alex, I'm Tara, and while the Angels are all in on Mike Trout, what exactly are the Cardinals all in on? Hey everybody, thanks for checking out another week of Chirps. Guys, we're 20 episodes in. Can you believe that? Thank you to all of you for hanging with us through a weird winter of baseball, but we are so close to games that actually matter. And Alex, I'm not sure a lot of people who have actually been watching the Cardinals, meaning not you, uh, are feeling very confident about where this team is just about a week away from breaking camp. I mean, we talked a little bit about it last week. Do we care about these spring training stats yet? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I, I think it's going to be one. I think that's one of those questions that we can't really answer until we really see what's on the field, um, you know, six weeks into the season. And if it mirrors what we saw in spring training, then like this is a really cheap answer. <laughs> but if it mirrors what we saw in spring training, then all these concerns are valid. If it doesn't, then it's just another example of spring training showing you that you don't always want to necessarily take the results and uh, kind of project too much on the season. I, that's an awful answer, but I don't know how to hedge any better than that because it's I true, really though. don't know. It's true, though. And, and you know, everybody wants kind of that hot take. Here's what is going to happen based on the last, you know, three and a half weeks of spring training play. But the reality is, there's so much about what happens during spring training that doesn't mirror what you're going to be seeing in the regular season when, you know, they're approaching those games with a completely different mindset. Obviously you would like to see some consistency. You would like to see the results from perhaps good at bats becoming more consistent um, over the course of the spring, but it is really hard to, to try to generate any sort of, solid conclusions from the spring until you see what happens when they're actually trying to put all the pieces together <laughs> in, sure. in games that they're actually trying to win. So it does sound, and I've said the same thing, it sounds like kind of a, a, a cop-out answer, but it's, I, I don't have a hot take to give you. <laughs> it's, it's spring training. I don't know how much it matters. We don't know what it's going to mean. Sometimes teams have a spectacular spring training and the regular season starts and they're terrible and vice versa. So um, it, there's still a lot to be determined that, yeah, you'd like to start to see some of the, those results early, but it's still too soon to panic as far as I'm concerned. Um, and maybe we just leave it at that, mostly because I, I kind of buried the lead here. <laughs> um, considering we've spent a significant amount of time on this show over the winter talking about players that are not and now will not ever be St. Louis Cardinals, uh, let's talk about Mike Trout. <laughs> yeah. Um, reportedly signing a deal that spans 12 years. It looks like it's an additional 10 years added to the remaining two years of his current contract for a total of approximately $430 million. If you're keeping track at home, that is $100 million more than the Bryce Harper contract, which will make Mike Trout a lifetime Los Angeles angel. Reportedly, the deal includes full no-trade clause and no opt-outs. Alex, there's a lot to unpack here, uh, and everybody who's listening, I promise we'll circle back to the Cardinals eventually, but this is a contract that makes Mike Trout basically the highest paid athlete, like, of all time, <laughs> and he's 
absolutely earned that. And yet there are still people who are saying uh, he gave up a lot of money, left a lot on the table. Yeah, I suppose there is something to that. The My response to that would be, uh, one, I think this is a great deal for both the club and the player. Um, he And he may have left some money on the table, but, you know, a lot can happen in two years no. in terms of w- when Trot was going to hit free agency. I, you know, it, there's never been as much of a sure thing in baseball as Mike Trout, I guess. So I don't want to act like there was much, there's much of a chance that, you know, he was going to somehow drop off a cliff because I, there's no way that's going to happen or, you know, but let's say he got injured or something like that. You know, I, I think if, if I'm in Trout's position, especially if he likes it in Anaheim, which he obviously does, or he doesn't sign this contract, I find this very attractive, you know, um, just, I, I don't, you know, I keep thinking about a player like Andrew McCutcheon and, and believe me, Andrew McCutcheon was never as good as Mike Trout because no one has been as good as Mike Trout since perhaps, I don't know, Willie Mays is that, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Barry, I guess Barry, I shouldn't forget about Barry Bonds, but a lot happened with a player like McCutcheon from age 27 to 29 um, to where he was never quite the player, you know, you know, he was, you know, in the first part of that. I don't think that would have happened to Trout, but I can definitely see why, you know, he's basically striking at while the iron is hot as it could possibly be. Um, yeah. I, I don't want to underestimate him. Maybe by the time he hits free agency, he'll have put up even better seasons than what we've seen from him before because, you know, who knows what this guy's capable of. But I totally get it from his standpoint. And, you know, whether he's he left money on the table, it's certainly possible. But you know, based on kind of just how weird the last two um, off seasons have been with regard to free agency, it certainly kind of seems like a smart move on his part, or yeah, at least a defensible move, a very defensible right, move. Right, sure. <laughs> it's it's a mo- I mean, it's hard to uh, not defend taking four hundred and thirty million dollars in in any <laughs> capacity, but nonetheless, um, this it's interesting to me because this is kind of the antithesis of the sort of deals that we thought might be on the horizon for the best players in the game. I mean, the, the higher average annual value, not as many years kind of deals with players betting on themselves and, and kind of being as invested in the business of their own careers as teams are in the business of their organizations. I felt the same way about the Bryce Harper deal in that there's in the way that both of these guys have, kind of structured or or moved into these long-term no opt-outs kind of contracts there's value in the certainty there's value in the consistency in knowing what you're going to be dealing with and to some degree for for Mike Trout maybe even a loyalty factor which to me is something that we've spent a lot of time talking about how that doesn't apply in baseball anymore because there's too much money involved it is it crazy for me to to feel like this is a little bit of a, uh, a hard left turn from where we thought the bis- business of baseball was going? Uh, no, I don't think that's crazy at all. You know, we talked about this, I guess, last week or the week before uh, with Harper that we both found it curious that he didn't have an opt-out, and that seems to be the same thing here. Uh, I would say to that, spending, knowing you're going to likely spend um, – a good chunk of the next decade, if not more than that, in Southern California, particularly Anaheim, is not the worst <laughs> thing in the world. So I, I, I don't know if an opt-out really is that huge here, I, and especially if he's content and happy where he is. Um, 
I, I really cool. That was my response to all of it. Like, wow, that's a great contract. Good for him. Good for the team. Good for their fans. Uh, to me, this is very, very good for baseball in general. Yeah, it's, I, I guess, to sort of backtrack on what I was saying, it's easy to be loyal for that kind of money, right? <laughs> um, it's easy to say, yeah, I'd love to spend my career with the the team that believed in me from the beginning, when you're not dealing with, say, an Albert Pujols type situation, where there are other teams who are offering you more. Um, it's easy to kind of play the loyalty card when... <laughs> You were only get, you're only dealing with one offer, right? But it does put him in a position where he can kind of have that I don't know the the sentimentality factor with fans as well. I know that you know baseball fans in LA are not quite like baseball fans uh, in St. Louis. It's not the same sort of emotional tie to things. But those fans now know that they get to watch their superstar and he gets to continue to be their superstar without them worrying about having to see him in another uniform somewhere down the road. And whether or not there's value that that translates to how much money he's making or not, there's something to be said for that too, I think, especially coming off of a, a circumstance as far as Cardinals fans are concerned, where they didn't get that with Albert Pujols. And to add to that point, I'll also say that the Angel fans are also able to avoid these next two years or um, or however long where people were just going to speculate on where he was going to end up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if that's the biggest deal in the world. Um, I, I know, you know, for instance, during 2011, it seemed like it was constantly talked about uh, with Pujols. Um, and just from living in D.C., you know, people were talking about it a lot with Harper last year. Um, right. Whether or not that matters, I don't know. But just from a stance, uh, excuse me, a fan standpoint, I think it's certainly nice to not even really have to think about that anymore. Yeah, I'm sure it's nice for Mike Trout to not have to answer questions about it all the time either, because that that tends to be the only way that a storyline goes when these things come up. So it is interesting all the talk we've heard about how it's it's not the money, it's the years, and sort of maybe this veiled attempt at, at front offices trying to create leverage for themselves. Because long-term contracts are not only possible, but they are also what has won the bidding war for the teams uh, who have been willing to play that game as far as Machado and Harper and Trout are concerned. It, it I don't know if this offseason was expected to break the baseball model in that way. But <laughs> here we are looking at these these long-term contracts that um, that don't give either side that additional leverage in the form of opt-outs or, or um, a lack of no-trade clauses or whatever it is. Uh, almost immediately, though, eyes turned to Mookie Betts, who is eyeing his own extension with the Red Sox. Of course, we saw Nolan Arenado do a similar thing not too long ago. Um, Let's be realistic. Mookie Betts is great. He's not Mike Trout. (laughs) No one is Mike Trout uh, at this point in the game. But that does sort of bring me back to where we left off in last week's show, talking about Paul Goldschmidt. Where does this leave him in this conversation and the Cardinals as the team that would like to be the one who can lock him up? Certainly not as long term as that because of where he is in his career, but all of these pieces start to push the Cardinals a little bit more, wouldn't you think? Yes, but for the fact that, you know, with the examples with Arenado, Trout, and Betts, these are, uh, you know, teams that are already familiar with them. Um, And especially a player like Betts, who, you know, you're you're 
absolutely right. He's not Mike Trout, but if last season was any indication, he's the next best thing. Um, so it certainly yeah. makes sense. And what he's going to be 20, he's only 25 or, or 26 at the most. So you can certainly see why the Red Sox would be in a, a giant hurry to, uh, to extend him or sign him, whatever. Um, if this moves the needle on the Goldschmidt situation, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know. You know, I feel like Goldschmidt, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, the Cardinals haven't seen him play in Bush Stadium, you know, they they don't know how he's, you know, going to adjust to the new environment, stuff like that, w- whether or not he's age is going to become a factor soon. I feel like at this point that he's enough of a sure thing based on his pedigree up to this point that if they wanted to, that if, that, that if Goldschmidt was, I don't know, open to a five-year contract that the Cardinals would be all over that. Yeah. I- that's sort of where I'm at with this. I mean, he's not going to be able to demand 10 plus years because he's not 26. Um, I mean, he could try. Someone might go for that, but I, I certainly wouldn't, ex- wouldn't expect it to be the Cardinals. But, you know, if you look at a six-year contract or a five-year contract, even if you're looking at that 30 plus average annual value, I mean, that's a, a very realistic contract for the Cardinals to sign. It would be significant. It would be huge uh in in their terms but in the the grand scheme of what it's taking to get superstar players right now it seems to be much more in their wheelhouse especially when they're going to have the first crack at it as far as talking to goldschmidt about what it would take to to get him to sign there we've said all of this before but it's just interesting to me every time another one of these deals gets done especially one that um that is a, a guy who's staying with the team that he's been with. It makes the move to trade for Goldschmidt this season, as opposed to waiting to try to go after him in free agency, maybe a little smarter of a move than we gave credit for at the time, just because, you know, the Cardinals have this season as much of it as they want to spend, or as much as Goldschmidt wants to spend kind of evaluating how they can make that deal work and having kind of that first swing at at making it happen, whether it's five years or six years or whatever the actual numbers end up being. Yeah. And real quick on Goldschmidt, uh, are are we sure we're calling him Goldie? Is that, is that what's what we're doing? Yes. Is that okay. All right. If, if, if we're to, I mean, unless you have a better idea, Well, I think I saw on like baseball reference, like his other nickname was some like America's first baseman. And so I think, (laughs) Goldie is better than that, I guess. Goldie's yeah. fine. I might just call him by his name. I don't know. I, maybe Goldie go. will warm up to me by the time, uh, you know, he starts hitting home runs and stuff. Whatever it is, if you go with Paul, <laughs> just differentiate which Paul you're talking about because that will be a point of confusion. PG actually seems like All a season. very uh, good nickname for him and on point. Seems yeah, appropriate, yeah. actually. <laughs> maybe maybe that'll catch on. Um so the other part of this that's interesting to me, as far as the Cardinals are concerned, ties back into Goldschmidt, ties back into these teams being willing to sign these massive contracts. I mean, the Angels aren't really in a position where they're expected to be super competitive this year, but Mike Trout's going to be a part of it, whether they're successful years or or not successful years. The Cardinals made it a point to go get Paul Goldschmidt and to, in doing so, say very emphatically that 2019 matters. There's been some discussion, Alex, we had this conversation in uh, the birds on the black group chat um, last week about this idea of 
what that really means. Does it mean all in as has become the narrative about the Cardinals this season or not? And where do you draw that line? And is it really splitting hairs in a way that doesn't actually matter? Uh, but this all kind of circles back to that for me, because what the Cardinals do with Paul Goldschmidt Obviously, it matters for this season in bringing him to St. Louis, but what does going for it mean moving forward when, you know, going for it in in a, of itself obviously isn't solely about signing a superstar, but it, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, one of the reasons why I sort of took offense to, I don't know if took offense, but where I, I kind of just didn't quite take the Cardinals at their word of like Goldschmidt being the move that showed that they were really, you know, going for it in 2019 is I feel like that's a trade they make anytime. Like, I feel like that's a trade yeah. they make in 2016, 2017, you know, if, they, if they're able to, they do. I mean, look, they gave up Carson Kelly and Luke Weaver. Um, I, I, I think we'll both argue that those are very good pieces to get in return, especially if you're the diamondbacks and you can use Carson Kelly uh, a lot sooner than the Cardinals can, you know, we know how good Luke Weaver can be at his best. Uh, what they also got Andy young, who I'm not gonna pretend I know a ton about. And also that competitive balance uh, pick. So from the Cardinals standpoint, I don't feel, even though I think those are, again, you know, I'm not taking anything away from those guys, but from the Cardinals standpoint, that wasn't like a punch to the gut in terms of like, oh my gosh, look what we just gave away, right? So I feel like th that's a trade they make. That's a very, very Cardinals move. And it always has been. You know, it, it reminded me a lot of the, you know, he's not as good as players, Goldsmith, but it reminded me kind of a lot of the Hayward trade uh, or even the holiday trade, I guess. The holiday trade might even be a better example. Um, and, I, you know, I know a lot of Cardinals, I don't know if Cardinals fans caught flack or, or people who were kind of, filling in the all in blank quote as if it came straight from Mo's mouth. And, you know, I, even I did that. And I kind of, I think at your urging, uh, I went and looked and no, he didn't actually say that, but, but let me tell you what Mo did say. Uh, first he said, all right. And this is in an article uh, by Derek Gould from December, simply said, John Mazalek, president of baseball operations. We realize the importance of 2019. Then he goes on to say, what I'm thinking about today is 2019. Um, you know, what changed? He responded, what we're doing in the past wasn't working. Got to do something different. You're right. I've always been one of the bigger picture, the longer term decision making, but we've got to try to start trying to win now. And this was all in an article called High Rollers, question mark, Cardinals putting their chips on 2019. So it's not crazy right. that fans would <laughs> interpret both the title of that column and those quotes from Mo as saying all in and putting it in quotes. Um, so it's not like they just made that up out of thin air. Now, now maybe mm -hmm. it's kind of like this circular journalism where people keep saying all in, all in to the point where people just assume Mo said it and that's not incorrect. But anyone who, who like I say a year from now and say the Cardinals don't say the season doesn't go as planned in a year from now, a bunch of people are yelling at the Cardinals front office and saying, uh, you know, what happened? We thought you said you were going for it in 2019. And, you know, look at Gio Gonzalez signed over here and Dallas Keuchel, you know, went over here. How come you guys weren't in on, you know, on these players? And they say something like, well, you misinterpreted us. We weren't saying we we're, you know, sacrificing everything on 2019, blah, blah, blah. We still care about the future or whatever. 
I'm gonna I'm gonna say that's ridiculous. I think it's very fair to interpret those comments as saying, no, you are saying you plan on doing things differently this season. And as far as I can tell right now, I don't think they really have done anything all that different. To me, it's business as usual. Now, the good thing about that is business is usually pretty good, right? With a con- you know, they, they, <laughs> no one's saying they don't know what they're doing, but don't try to sell me this idea that oh no, they're really like thinking outside the box and going out of their comfort zone and making these moves that they wouldn't have made two years ago. Like I'm not buying that at all. Um, I, you know, we we kind of had a disagreement on this in the. Uh, oh no, we, we did have a disagreement on this in the, uh, or at least on kind of the semantics of it, I guess in the group chat. So I'm curious yeah. what you think on this. Yeah, it's a, an interesting conversation to me because I I I've been hesitant to use that all-in terminology because I couldn't remember <laughs> if there was in fact a quote from John Mozeliak that essentially said that. Um so when I saw those quotes and it, it maybe it's just a matter of reading them differently, but when I saw those quotes from John Mozeliak, that was the only article I remembered where this idea sort of generated from. It was interesting to me that I, I believe it was in the same article that Mike Gersh made some comments that kind of backtracked that pretty quickly and and basically said, I think the message is not that we're emphasizing 2019 at the expense of all else. We've always had a long-term view and perhaps tweaking that is what's leading us. If we were focusing on 2019 exclusively, there's a lot more young talent that wouldn't be here in 2019 that we could move. No one does that. We're not going to. We're not going to just throw everything at 2019. But relative to long-term versus short-term views, that math has changed. So I guess that's where I kind of ended up on all of this is that there was this incentive based on the last couple of seasons to make enough changes that they were noticeable and that they were tangible in the way the season went. Because if you remember before last season, Mo made similar comments that, oh, half of the roster might not be here next year. And then nothing really changed, not significantly. So there were changes. If you talk to other fans of teams in the NL Central, getting Paul Goldschmidt was a huge move, (laughs) Um, perhaps overshadowed by the fact that it does seem like a very Cardinals-esque move. And and so it doesn't seem that far out of character. But to me, I I do feel like there is a, a, a line between going all in, as in, look, we're putting everything we've got into 2019 versus going for it in 2019. And maybe that's just semantics and and people can interpret that as they will. But I sort of took a little bit of an issue with how Mo's comments followed by Mike Gersh's comments turned into this running theme of the 2019 season being, well, the Cardinals have said they're all in on 2019, but why aren't they proving that? And that's where I just felt like there was a disconnect between kind of what was actually said and, and how it was being presented. Okay. If, if I can push on, push back on you just a little bit. Sure, please. <laughs> so first off, no one is saying like the Cardinals should sacrifice everything in their future for the sake of 2019. Uh, I can't, right. I, I no Cardinals fan on the left, no Cardinals fan on the right center, wherever you want to find them is going to say that. But I want to focus on something uh, Gersh said from that quote you read. He said, if we're focusing on 2019 exclusively, there's a lot more young talent that wouldn't be here in 2019 that we can move. 
So I take that to mean what he's saying is, look, if we wanted to really go all in or, or whatever, we could trade a lot of these great young prospects we have that we're developing for more established players, right? Is that how you interpret that? Is sure, that yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's so fair. my response to that is, I don't think many people, I don't think there's that many people that want you to do that. What, what yeah. we are asking you to do is look at players who cost you nothing but money. Uh, like Gio Gonzalez, who just signed for what that super cheap what, minor league deal with the Yankees. Did I read that correctly? Yeah. Uh, you yeah. know, Dallas Keuchel's on side. Uh, I actually like Craig Kimberl, even though I know he was he had a bit of a down you know down year last year, and I don't love the idea of you know shelling out money to relievers, and that certainly burned the Cardinals bullpen in the past as recently <laughs> as last year. But he's also one of the greatest relievers of all time, and I feel like a diminished. Uh, I feel like a diminished Kimbrel is still pretty good and certainly better than what we usually have in our pen. So I think the frustration comes from the fact that one, they didn't really do anything different this off season. If they would have, they would have spent their money on, I guess, securing the pitching staff. Am I, is that the right way to say it? So, so like, so we're yeah. not depending on, wow, I really hope Dakota Hudson, John Gant, um, turn out to to be, you know, fifth fifth spot starters. I really hope Alex Reyes can stay healthy. I hope Wainwright really can look more like that Wainwright we saw in September against the Dodgers. Hey, I hope Carlos Martinez's shoulder uh, rebounds pretty soon. <laughs> I hope Michael Waka can actually pitch 150 innings and isn't done for by mid July. Uh, and let's hope that there isn't much regression from Jack Flaherty and Miles Michaelis as well. Um, but other than that, everything sounds great, you know? So <laughs> to me, yeah, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's typical of fans to, to kind of co- constantly be harping on this stuff, but it's always better to err on the side of putting the pressure on Mo, especially if he's going to be constantly saying these things, um, to, to the media and stuff, and, and stuff like this. And, and granted, yeah, Gersh's comic does kind of, I guess push back at what Mo said, but what I'm left then. Like no one's listening to him. <laughs> yeah, what? Well, no one's listening to him. It's, it's still, I feel so bad for him sometimes. I, I mean, I doubt he cares. I'm sure he's just fine. And he actually has a yeah. dream job. I would love to be able to just like sit there at the press conferences and never have to say anything and just, right, you know, right. have a suit on and uh, everyone, you know, just assume I'm, I'm doing something great behind the scenes. And I'm, I'm sure he is. But uh, yeah, like, I, I guess what I'm left is, well, then can we agree this article or whatever and what they're both saying is basically meaningless? I mean, what was the point of this column? Not what was the point? What was like, what should the takeaway have been? Right. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I feel like I I'm think shouting, that... like I'm on around the whole <laughs> Hey man, uh, this, we don't often disagree on things. So uh, <laughs> this, you're welcome. Everyone who's listening. Um, and, and I would love to know, you know, where you all come down on this as well. But so one thing that I would say is that I think I keep coming back to this idea that 2019 is important and how that can be interpreted in multiple ways. I would love to know, I would love to ask a follow-up question on that quote in particular, because I can see it this way and I can see it this way because of what we know about John Mozeliak and that he values prospects and and homegrown talent and building from within so incredibly highly but often they're not in a situation where they can put that homegrown talent to the test 
in a real world situation where they're going to have to either sink or swim. So there's an argument to be made, and I'm not saying it's the right argument or it's necessarily a good argument, but I'm just presenting the case that 2019 to me is incredibly important for Jack Flaherty and for Miles Michaelis and for Dakota Hudson and Alex Reyes and Carlos Martinez and all of those guys that we've said multiple times on this show, there are huge question marks about them. They have to have an opportunity to succeed or to fail before the Cardinals even know what they're really worth. And you'd you'd ideally not want to see all of that in the same season. <laughs> um, so perhaps there's a, there's a line to be drawn there where, you know, if you have a, a Dallas Keuchel type or even Gio Gonzalez, just as someone you know has been there and, and is capable of uh, competing at the major league level before. But I think the idea that 2019 is important, I felt like that was a very intentional way of saying this year is important because of what we've done or failed to do the last three or four years, but it's also important as the setup for what's coming next. And and that seemed to me what followed the Paul Goldschmidt move, even the Andrew Miller move, um, maybe not going out and, and bringing in some of those guys who are looking for longer term pitching contracts because they have to know what the real world major league value is of a lot of these guys before Mo is going to be willing to move any of them or to move on from them in any other way. So uh, like I said, I don't know if that's a great argument. It might sound like me trying to defend the front office and that's not the case. It's just maybe sort of seeing an interpretation of his comments that is more in line with what they've actually done. Because to answer your question, why do they say things like this? Well, Sometimes I think they say things that only make sense if you have all of the context and they're not ever going to provide all of the context. And that's where these things get left open to interpretation. And, you know, months later, he said that in December and we're still we're still arguing about what he meant and why he said it and what it should or or shouldn't mean for the moves that this team makes. So uh, thanks, Mo, for for that. (laughs) No, um, last thing I'll say about this is and I want to be perfectly clear, they know way more about this than I do. I'm not trying to pretend otherwise. Uh, I, I, they have all the resources. They have all the data. Um, I'm not trying to pretend I'm anything more than just someone who writes for Birds on the Black and comes on with you once a week and we yell about this stuff and, and discuss it to the best of our abilities based on the quotes and sound bites we're given. Um, that said, I think if the season comes and goes and some of like the worst fears that all the doom and gloom sayers are, are, are saying out there, if some of those come true, I think Mo Gersh, you know, down the line will get a ton of criticism and that they will have deserved almost every ounce of it. Because, you know, at the end of the day, that's the way that job works. You get perhaps more praise than you deserve when things break your way. And when things don't, you get the blame. And I, and I think to your point, if this is their grand plan and, and they have a grand plan, which at times this off season, it has not appeared that they did. It has to work or they're going to be criticized for it. And that's sort of the nature of 
the the position they've put themselves in. Did they go out and do everything they possibly could for 2019? I think the answer to that is no. Um, is that okay? <laughs> I think is to be determined. And that's where a lot of this will continue to be brought back to the forefront if what they have done doesn't work, as you said. And and I think the climate of the free agent market this offseason was probably pretty off-putting to the comfort zone <laughs> of the Cardinals front office. And maybe they're smarter than all of us, but what they have been doing hasn't been working either. So it's it's not unfair to criticize some form of the status quo when uh, when they haven't made the playoffs. <laughs> I agree. All right. So we'll circle back to that, I'm sure, as the season goes on. Uh, like I said, feel free to chime in on your thoughts on that. And if you need the exact quotes again, uh, you should look up that Derek Gould article because that seems to be where a lot of this has stemmed from. And I would just say, don't go uh, attacking Derek Gould about it. He just wrote the story that that using the quotes that they gave him. But um, it's it's part of this lead up to this season that I think has created a lot of angst with uh, with the fan base for sure. What hasn't been in in any way uh, problematic or or controversial for this team is the legends that show up in spring training. Uh, Alex, I believe our chirp of the week features one of them. Yes. Yeah. And I know I've uh, mentioned that I haven't been watching any spring training games and I've probably sounded almost a little obnoxious um, when I say that. And if I'm almost bragging about it. I certainly don't mean to sound that way. Um, but one thing I really do like about spring training is what you just said. I like seeing all the old timers there. You know, certainly red was kind of always the, the big staple that was there every year. Um, and that's no longer the case. You know, obviously he passed away last summer, but, you know, you still see Bob Gibson, Ozzy, uh, and I believe Lou Brock was there uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I always just get happy when I see Lou Brock. He always seems to be smiling, uh, always seems to just be in a good mood. And I, I've seen enough telecasts where Tim McCarver has basically said that's how he is all the time. Uh, but whenever I see Lou Brock, I also think of this excerpt from the book, October 1964 by David Halverson. Uh, I, I called him Bill Halverson one time when we were on this podcast uh, talking about this very same book. But no, it is certainly David Halverson. And it's an excerpt early in, the, in this book. from, And it's, he's talking about a time when Lou Brock was still with the Cubs. So before the great uh, Brolio for Brock trade. And this is what Halverson wrote. If some people in Chicago thought Brock not motivated enough, his Cub roommate Ernie Banks thought him too motivated, to the point that he had lost that most, that most critical of athletic abilities, the ability to relax and just play. In fact, Brock was so tense that he had trouble sleeping and eating. Banks, who recognized Brock's fierce ambition, told his friend again and again to relax, that he was blocking his baseball abilities. Unlike most young ballplayers, Brock kept records of every game he played in which pitchers he had faced, what pitches they had thrown him, and how well he had done against them. Banks had never seen a player so determined or goal-oriented. Before a road trip, Brock would write down how many hits he would get and how many runs he should drive in. He talked all the time about how he had to make it as a major league star, about how it would mean a life of success and affluence. 
whereas failing would send him back to the extreme poverty from which he had come. I've got to make it here, Brock would say again and again. Excuse me, again and again. I just can't go back to Louisiana and Arkansas. I've been there and I know what's there, end quote. I am here to play baseball, Banks would think, but Lou, Lou is here to fight a war. And that's the excerpt. I've always thought that was really cool. And the whole book is fantastic. And Tara, I know we haven't discussed really any of the uh, new rule changes that have been so in the news lately. Um, some of the rules I think are good. Some of the rules I think are not so good. Um, you all probably know which, um, what rule changes I'm talking about. But one of the reasons why I'm probably a little too conservative and a little too, I don't know, um, slow to embrace change in baseball is that one of the reasons why I really love baseball, and I don't mean to sound like one of those fans who's like, baseball is the absolute everything and no other sport can measure up because I find those fans, those fans can be a little obnoxious sometimes. But one thing I really do love about baseball is that the game has remained pretty constant for how long it has been around. Like certainly the players are bigger, faster, stronger today than they were, you know, of years past. But if you read about a baseball game from 1964, like in this book or from 50 years ago, it still really feels like you're reading about the exact same game. And I don't believe that's the case with if you ever read a book about a football game from the 60s when, you know, they had barely even experimented with a forward pass yet or, or basketball where, you know, dunking and three-pointers <laughs> were basically not a thing. Certainly three-pointers were. And, you know, that really is one of the great things about baseball. The, the game has certainly changed in many ways, but if you pick up uh, a book about baseball and you read about Lou Brock, you read about some of the things he did on the field, you, it almost reads as though you're reading about a player from today. Um, so that is the trip of the week. Everyone read this book. It's fantastic. Yeah. Do you have anything to add, Tara? I love that. I, I would just add that it's that last thing you said, you feel like you're almost reading about players from today. I feel like there's a lot of what you read there that we've heard about Jack Flaherty and the intensity of his preparation and the notes that he keeps and the work he does beforehand, which is fascinating to me because he's such a, a modern talent with sort of this, to me, kind of an old school vibe about the way he goes about his work and the way that he takes what he does so seriously. And he's so intense about it. Um, so it is interesting to see that, you know, the greats throughout the history of the game kind of have uh, that similarity all the way through that, you know, they they're so intensely competitive um, that in many cases, that's what that's what carries them from good to great, regardless of, of what position they're playing yeah, or what their role is. <laughs> you know, one of the great things about being a fan of baseball today is kind of like the stats revolution. And but unfortunately, sometimes. Like, say, if you bring up a player like Lou Brock, the first thing you'll hear someone today say is like, oh, well, he shouldn't, you know, look at his war. You know, he shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. And, and, you know, if that's the first thing you go to when you think about Lou Brock, then you're doing it all wrong. Because what you should be thinking about is right. this is a guy who was 5'10", like, you know, probably barely 160 pounds. And he pounded out, three thousand, you know, over 3,000 hits that he retired as the highest, you know, he had the most stolen bases of anyone who had ever played baseball by the time he retired. That's what you should be thinking about when you think about Lou Brock. And that's why a lot of older baseball fans don't appreciate mm -hmm. the stat revolution of the modern game. But, you know, there there are ways to uh, to appreciate yeah. both of those extremes for sure. All right. So that is your trip of the week. That is your show. 
let us know how you feel about the Mike Trout deal, how you think it affects or doesn't what the Cardinals can do with Paul Goldschmidt and what you think 2019 is important and we're going for it actually means or maybe what it should mean. You can send us all of that on Twitter at Birds on the Black or I'm at Tara Wellman. He's at AlexCard79. We'll be back at you next week. And guys, we're going to be pretty close to talking about real baseball at that point. And keep this in mind, the schedule might shift a bit once the season starts. Uh, you got to be a little more on the ball when you've got games happening every single night. So we're going to play with some ideas there. Let us know when you want to hear new episodes of the show, and we'll be sure to keep you updated on all of that. So until then, I'm Tara, he's Alex, we'll talk to you next time.